For a very limited time, if you use coupon code RIDE at RoadID.com, you'll score $5 off one piece of gear no cyclist should ever ride without. Again, that's coupon code RIDE. And in case you're wondering, Road IDs range in price from a mere $20 to $35. So not only are they inexpensive, they look great, they last forever, and just might save your life. So stop procrastinating. Go get one of these today. Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby Julik and outskirts visionary Gus Morton invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Put Your Socks On. I'm Bobby Julik, and I'm always joined by Gus Morton. Today, we're talking about stage 19 of the 2019 Tour de France, from Saint-Jean-de-Murienne to Tignes. Oh, wait a second. We're going to have to correct that. We're going to have to correct that. If you guys didn't pay attention today, it was a never-seen-before scenario So actually, we're talking about the truncated stage, stage 19 of the 2019 Tour de France from Saint-Jean-de-Murienne to the top of the Col d'Isaron. Gus, have you ever seen anything more crazy than what happened today? Bobby, there is some voodoo shit going down at the Tour de France this year. I feel like the gods have gone, do you know what? The status quo has been like this for too long. We're just going to throw everything at the Tour because we have seen just... Curveball after curveball after curveball, and today they were just like, "We're gonna, we're gonna throw snow in the equation. We're gonna, we're gonna just really, we're gonna put a landslide in there." Climbed a mountain and I turned around. Why not? So, mate, I've never seen anything like it, and I don't think has there been anything like it. Very good question. No idea. I know that back when Bjorn Reese won the tour in 1997, they made the stage, they shortened the stage from over 200 kilometers to basically a 40k stage that he dominated and went on to win the tour but (laughs) anything like today no i i'm sorry i've never seen that but let's get into that a little bit later absolutely and a cracker of a stage it was up until that point mate really good show today we're talking and this is no bullshit we 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 sat down a month ago and laid out uh plans for each stage what we were going to talk about in terms of a theme and today's theme is weather. People out there, we, we, we've had this in the works. We predicted this months ago or weeks ago. So, yeah, we're going to talk uh, weather with Ryan Cooper from Best Bike Split um, and Training Peaks, which will be really interesting, uh, as well as we're going to hear from the superfan. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the number one cycling podcast in all of the world and all of the universe. Bobby, before we get to the stage, let's get our daily dose of Road ID to a Trivia. All right. It's time for today's daily dose of Road ID Tour Trivia. To play, head on over to roadid.com slash TDF. Today's question, who was the first American to compete in the tour and a World Cup mountain biking event? Go to roadid.com slash TDF 
to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize, a Thule T2 Pro XT bike rack. One lucky winner will even take home a $10,000 BMC shopping spree. Again, that's roadid.com slash TDF. I tell you one thing, Gus, I hope that those support cars have that Thule T2 Pro XT bike rack on the top of their car today, or there's going to be some stranded riders on the side of the road. Mate, and I, I, I reckon, uh, I hope there's a few guys out there that have uh, both road and mountain bike experience as well, because they ain't be getting down off that mountain if they're not, uh, if, if they're not too careful. Well, right? Let's just hope that they take care of that, because yeah, that's, that's going to be a bunch of guys sitting around in, in wet clothes for a while, and... You know, looking after your health and making sure that you don't get chilled is is so important in this this point in time in the Tour de France with these guys basically with, what, 4% body fat? They look like skeletons out there. They'll be in some trouble if they're stuck up there on the mountain. But let's reverse a bit before the pandemonium began to earlier this afternoon and the stage start, stage 19, all to play for today. Absolutely. It was such a great stage. And now it's going to have that little asterisk by it, like what could have happened? What should have happened? How do we do this? There's going to be so many opinions, but let's, let's not take away from how great this stage was. We started off with a lot of drama uh, yeah. right away, looking at the abandonment of, of Thibaut Pino. I, I felt for the guy. I mean, this guy was absolutely shredding it all the way throughout the tour, especially in the Pyrenees. And then to see him, pull off to the side of the road and try to remove a bandage. Um, it, it was just gut-wrenching. It just goes to show you how brutal this sport is. Everyone's talking about him being on the podium, if not oh, winning man. the tour. But something happened yesterday on yesterday's stage because you noted in the, on the pod yesterday that he, wasn't really, he didn't really look at his best. And now we know. No, he was definitely, definitely far from that yesterday. And, and I believe it was something to do with he hit he hit his knee uh, and leg on his handlebars, avoiding a crash in, the, in two stages ago. Uh, and it's just kind of manifested. Obviously, I mean, yesterday, you can imagine the tissue damage being done on 209K stage through the mountains. Um, but look, I don't, know, I don't know what my, I don't know, you know, the rules around uh, being someone who's broadcasting about the Tour de France, but I'm biased 100%. I really wanted to see him win. And I really believe that he could he could win. I'm you know I'm a big fan of his, and um, and that was when I when I saw that it was heartbreaking. I'm I'm a little bit I'm a little bit heartbroken today. Yeah, of another that. very interesting thing, even before the stage started, which came after the the stage yesterday, was did you see Landa's post stage interview? No, I didn't. I was actually searching to to try and find something from him last night, and I didn't I didn't come across anything. But you've mentioned that you put it here. I'm intrigued. What, like, what did he say? What, what it, it's what he didn't say or how he said it more than anything. So I'll truncate okay. the whole thing. So just imagine. They ask him, yep. are you guys going to support Quintana tomorrow? And his response was, <laughs> okay, now eight second delay. I'm not going to wait for eight seconds, but put in, in your head an eight second delay. Eight seconds. And then says, we'll see. Are you kidding me? Like, you're not even happy for your teammate who just won the stage. You're not going to at least put on a happy face. You're just going to do the old shrug of the shoulders, delay, and then, you know, non-committal response. I didn't like that at all. But Mate, Lander in the dark arts, he is, uh, he's known for his kind of like very no-filter frank interviews, but like in his odd kind of calm style. 
Um, like he doesn't get fired up, but he just lays down some some heat. So, well, I mean, today he wasn't he wasn't necessarily setting the road alight yeah. himself. So. so yeah, let's let's recap yeah. a little bit of the stage, which I initially coined "ouch from the couch." As I was watching it from kilometer zero, it started straight uphill. So you know, guys were hurting immediately. The attacks started from all the expected teams and, you know, kind of going and coming back and going and coming back until a little breakaway with Nibali, Martin, Bilbao, and and Harada, who it was his birthday today. So I don't think he's going to forget this birthday, birthday. you know, with with everything that happened. So they got away to uh, on uh, prior to climb number one, which was just a a category three. Um, That was won by Dan Martin in front of Bilbao. Uh, I think it was really great to see Nibali and Martin giving it a go again. You know, they mm. have had a difficult tour, but they're still up there fighting, fighting for the prizes, you know. But yeah, as you say, we'll call it the quote, air quote, Peloton. Guys were just getting hooped right away. And you just <laughs> had to think right away, these poor guys having to do this sort of stage and in the back of their mind from kilometer zero is the time cut issue. So, yeah, you know, great to see those guys up there. But, yeah, the big story after that first climb was Pino struggling with something. He was going back, called up the medical car, then the team car, and then he pulled down his short or pulled up his shorts, and you actually saw that he had some sort of tape, athletic tape or bandage or something. It was like, wait, what's that? But right then and there, you saw the look on his face, and, and he, he was done. Uh, for him to even try to start the stage was very admirable. And for, for all of us bike racing fans out there, it, it just hurt. To, to understand the, the sacrifices yeah. and commitment that he, his family, his team made to be in this position in the Tour de France and then have it all go away due to some issue was, was heartbreaking, to say the least. But yeah, now... And and what I find what I find heartbreaking. Sorry to, to cut you off, but like what I think is really heartbreaking about that ride is that he kept it a secret. And you know, over the course, like the Tour de France is really unique in that it plays out over such a long period of time. And you kind of feel like, as I mean, I do, you know, as the audience. And I think this is what, when I was a kid, really made me fall in love with the sport. Is you really feel like you're going on this journey with the athlete, right? And you're sharing in this battle that they're, you know, you kind of become emotionally invested. And so. For me, when you kind of find you found out, you're like, oh man, I didn't know. Like we didn't know. We didn't get to kind of like, I don't know. Like I don't know. It just feels like we 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 the audience could have helped him somehow by like wishing him well over the last few days. And you almost feel sadder that he was keeping that a secret because, you know, you can't let your rivals sniff weakness and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting too uh, too too attached to it. But <laughs> that's my. But the Tour de France thoughts. waits for no one. That's for sure. The moment he slept, jumped Absolutely into the car not. there, okay, let's turn the page. Let's, let's get going again. A big group, again, uh, got up to about 29 riders at one time. We had Valverde in there, Simon Yates, Uran, Woods, Barguil. This looked dangerous to me. And all I could do was think of, man, we got a few more climbs to go. And then the big, big one on is Iran before the final. This, this is going to get interesting. But... Um, yeah. You know, over the top, top of the KOM number two at 38 kilometers, that was won by Caruso. So obviously, him sprinting Bardet yesterday, he's, he's, he's in it. He, he's got some interest in this KOM jersey, and that, that competition is not over yet. I don't know how they're going to score the points from today, but now you don't only have Bardet. Caruso may have taken the, 
the KOM jersey, but then you got to factor in um, Bernal. You know, he scored maximum points today, so he's probably up there. You know, will we see one rider take all three jerseys, the white, the polka dot, and the, and the, and the yellow? You never know. Um, we very but, well could, yeah. yeah. Uh, after, after climb two was when you said, okay, now we're in the meat of the race. Ineos takes over. Uh, I wasn't totally behind them doing that right right at that point. I thought it was a little bit early. Um, but then Koinik Quick Step came up with the unflappable Casper Askreen again. After everything that he's done, now he's riding tempo on on climbs and and stabilizing that gap because if they wouldn't have done that right there, that gap could have bloomed up to five or six minutes, but they kept it right at that you know two-minute mark, uh, one to two-minute mark. Um, going over kilo- uh, KOM number three at 64 kilometers, that was won by Caruso again in front of his teammate Nibali. And that was pretty cool when they crossed the, the KOM line. They kind of fist bumped each other, which, you know, you're spending a lot mm-hmm. of time with these guys. And this is late into the race. And just something like that just goes to show you the, the morale that they have in the team right now. So, yeah, at that point, it was two minutes back to the, the yellow jersey group. And then they started the, the Cat 3 Col de Madeleine climb. And that the Col de Madeleine is one of the most beautiful climbs on the planet. And from Alberville or from the other side, it's it's oh, I, I believe it's like 24 kilometers long. So obviously they came in pretty much at the top and just kind of pipped over the top of the Madeleine. But if you guys ever go to Europe and want yeah. to ride one of the most beautiful climbs there is on offer, go and check out the Madeleine. It's 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 phenomenal. So, yep. Lumen in the wings, we have uh, KOM number four, which was the highest part or highest point in the Tour de France. And they give a special award to that called the Souvenir Henri de Grange, 2,770 meters or 8,300 feet, higher than Aspen in Vail, Colorado. So you're, you're up there. That's no, a big boy. That's no a doubt real about big boy. it. And that's, that's when. It was like, okay, here we go. Castro Viejo got on the front. Then your boy, Dylan Van Barl, who, you know, Back you know from the break. went to that team to be a classic <laughs> specialist and now is, you know, pumping guys off the back. And once they started with that tempo, that group got small quick. Moss was yep. dropped, uh, leaving, leaving Alaphilippe isolated. Quintana got dropped. It was like, man. What, what's going on here? Everyone was so tired, especially after that sort of start in, on this sort of parkour. You, you didn't really know what was going to happen. And then Thomas attacks, finally. And it wasn't, it was one of those tester attacks, I believe. It wasn't like the, hey, I'm going, you know, full gas all the way. And, and full bowl, yeah. that was 6K from the top, but it definitely broke up the group a little bit, got some things started. But then Kreuzwick just goes right over the top of him. And I'm like, okay, now, now, now it's on. And Bernal just 5K from the top says, "Sayonara, I'm uh, I'm taking off." Little did he know that he was actually going for the stage win at that time. He was just trying to go over the. Yeah, lucky he did. By the way, lucky he just like lucky he threw threw the gauntlet down. Yeah, early. yeah. But when he went initially, he just seemed to be going okay. But Lawrence de Plus from um, Jumbo Visma kept him yeah. pretty in check there. But as you notice, the higher they got, he just didn't slow down and everybody else did. 
and it was kind of it, it was kind of like that yesterday, right? Like when he went, you weren't like, "Oh, that was like searing that move." It was just like he just kind of went at a higher tempo, but then just didn't slow down, and eventually that elastic band just kind of went, went, went. Yeah, went, once you snapped. get to those higher altitudes, you know, doing that dramatic snap attack, putting yourself into the red, it's an it's trouble. And Bernal has enough experience being from where he's from that he can ride at altitude and knows how to judge his efforts. And the other people try to hold on, but it, it, it eventually, like you said, uh, snaps. So this is where things, you know, maybe we should stop and say this was the, the end of the race, but it was, it was quite interesting. So let's, let's kind of give props to what was going on here. Yeah. So at the top of the climb, which was won by, by Bernal, it followed over the top mm-hmm. by Yates and Barguil. So eight-second time bonus yep. for Bernal, five-second for Yates, two seconds for, for Barguil. At that time, the Thomas, Kreiswick, Nibali, Ulran, Deplus, Spokeman, Landa group, they were about at a minute. And Alaphilippe mm-hmm. was at about two minutes. So... I'm thinking to myself, Philippe is going to definitely be able to make up a minute on this descent. But as they go over the, the top of the climb, you start to hear on the television that there is a hailstorm. So I see guys taking vests on. And I don't know if you've ever been in a hailstorm, Gus, but that vest is not going to help you if you're just getting pounded by, you know, pea-sized hail or golf ball-sized <laughs> hail. So I'm thinking, man, maybe, maybe this is going to pass. But then they started flashing down the mountain and showing a snowplow. And I'm like, wait a second, is that the race course? What's, what's going on here? Yeah, like substantial snow. Like whole road covered in snow for like a good stretch, like maybe a kilometer or so. And you're like, is that the... Yeah, I thought, I, didn't, I couldn't work it out what they, were trying to, what they were showing us. And finally, they're like, that's where we're going in like three kilometers time. And you're like, what the fuck? And, and right as it was on, these guys are going full stick down this descent. Halfway down the descent, it comes over the radio that the race has been canceled. How do you switch off? How do you yeah. go from being in that front Man. group with Yates and Bernal, Philippe chasing that group that I mentioned that was you know five or six guys, with the Tour de France on the line, with his yellow jersey on the line. How does that feel to hear over the radio, oh, guys, the race is over? Dude, and, and they had some, like, to, to even extend that, um, they had the cameras with, with the riders when they were getting given the news. So, like, it came over race radio, right? Uh, and, and obviously the commentators have race radio, so they're like, okay, we're just going quiet for a second because we're hearing that they're, that they're cancelling the stage. They're calling it at the top of, of um, the, <clears throat> the previous climb. And so then it kind of cuts back to, like, Banal and uh, Yates, and the motorbike, like the police motorbike comes up and he's like signaling them to them to slow down. And Bernard's still riding and Yates is kind of like, what's going on? And then Prundholm comes up in the car and he's like, it's off. And then you cut back to the group, Valverde group, and <laughs> Uran's like attacking because Valverde's trying to, no, Nibali, excuse me. Nibali's trying to stop. And he's sort of, you know, doing the hand gestures and they're arguing and then Uran attacks and you're like, it's, it was, yeah, it was crazy. Like, you could see this emotion, like these guys being told, you know, they're amped up, like they're playing for, for keeps here. They're going for, for what will be their legacy. And they're being told, sorry, guys, a uh, little rain down the bottom, little snow down the bottom. We didn't, we didn't see that before, and we're just going to tell you now. You're going to have to stop and pull over. Um, so wild, man. Like, that, I can't even imagine what but they were But for the thinking. ASO to 
to make that decision on the fly with everything in the balance, hanging in the balance. Man, I, I, I have to take off my hat because that was absolutely the right decision to make. When, when we started to see, 100%. when the images started to come in of what was really the issues that they were going to have to deal with, you never know. I mean, this is bike racing, man. This is a sport. If one rider would have gotten hurt, injured, killed, yeah. for God's sake, we'd be sitting here going, what are we doing? So in this sport, yeah. which very rarely do we have any sort of cohesiveness as a group, I was so happy to see the ASO with everything on the line. Remember, TV, um, all these, these the, the finishing town that paid a lot of money to be up there, all the towns and, and villages on the race course with all the people standing on the side of the road. Yeah, just everything, like the reputation. For them to say, you know what, we're going to put our riders' safety first, I think that was great. That was a watershed moment. There was no, oh, you know, we're going to stop and maybe start at the bottom of the last climb, which would have been 10 times worse, made our sport look absolutely yeah. pathetic. But I think they made the yeah. right decision. We go on the pod immediately after, and we have no idea what's going to happen. We assume that since they took the times on the top of the Izeron, that Bernal will be in yellow. But the time gaps won't be as big as maybe they would have been if they did get all the way to Monte de Tin. And that's exactly it. Like, I think, uh, like, as, you know, as of going to air, as, as of recording this, um, our information is that they potentially, that's what they're going to do. And, yeah, we can't speculate on, like, who knew what prior to, to the, the race crossing the top of the climb and why they, you know, whether they left it late and called it or whether they you know, called it early or what. But as you said, I think it was um, a bold decision and a brave decision, but the right decision to ultimately to stop that race. And it, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what plays out over the next probably, you know, eight or nine hours as to how they determine points, you know, like time bonuses. Do they give Banal 18 seconds worth of time bonuses? Like, how does that work out? Oh, you're so, talking, you're, you're talking the yeah, eight I mean, seconds for the KOM bonus and then the 10 yeah, seconds, yeah, the ten, 18 yeah. seconds right there. You're absolutely right. Exa you know, yeah. So, like, do they, like, there's all these things, I guess, which they're going to have to argue about and, and hand out. Um, but I guess, you know, the one, one, the positive light is that, uh, irrespective of how this has impacted the race, at least all the riders get to line up on the start line tomorrow and fight it out again, as opposed to someone being, you know, forced to abandon as a result of, of an accident or something. Yeah. Like and there that, was, so. there was talk that maybe they even yeah, just cancel the stage entirely. But, I hope they don't do that. That will put yeah, our sport so. back in the dark ages because the effort that everyone has made, not exactly. only up until this point, but up until that point of the stage, the race was on. The Tour de France mm. was being won and lost on the Isran. We saw that from the beginning of the race, that that was going to be a very decisive point. Those guys made the effort. There was no holding back. There was no like, oh, I'm just going to go easy, catch on on the descent, and then go really hard up the last climb. No, everyone was on their limit. You saw as soon as there was an inflection of pace, yeah. guys were piped. People know their spot in the pecking order, and I don't believe that anyone, any of the riders, are going to argue that Bernal should, should win the stage, should have the overall. But all those other little time differences, man, it's all on the you line tomorrow up. because maybe those time differences would have been a little bit different with that, that last climb up to Tina. And with that, super fan. How you doing, man? Known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. Super fan. Ugh. 
Gus, I'm great. What a crazy day. No words, just super crazy. The viewership numbers tomorrow should be through the roof. Anyway, now that we're in the high mountains, it's been interesting from a tactical perspective to watch Julian Alaphilippe and Emmanuel Bookman, who have been relatively isolated in the mountains with their teams built more around the sprint than supporting a GC run. Talk about what they are doing right this year to still be in contention this deep in the race. Is it down to just riding wisely, limiting losses, and following wheels as much as possible? Or have they been using what resources they do have really wisely? Bobby, if you were Bora Hansgrohe's DS, what would be your instructions to Buchwin and the boys before the stage tomorrow? Thanks, guys. Looking forward to a big day tomorrow. Well, as far as Philippe goes, in my opinion, you know, he, he is absolutely like when you used to play video games and you would get like extra lives that is that basically yeah. describes his tour they never thought that this was going to be possible i don't think he ever thought this this was going to be possible but you know what it's it's happening so i think with him he's just been dealing with the situations around him obviously there's a lot of other teams out there that kind of had the same assumptions as us that oh he's going to lose so he's been able to play off those teams a little bit but he's in a fantastic place. Of course, we see that he's isolated quite often, but you know they never banked on him going this deep into the tour, so you can't fault them at all. As far as Bora's concerned, I don't think they really knew how far Bokeman could go either. And he's just impressing everybody, left, right, and center. 26-year-old German kid. It's been a while since we've had you know that real German icon, and he's building himself into it. So... I think these guys, the, the Bora DS, the Quick Step DS, are like, hey, we're, we're in, in bonus lives here. We're in bonus time. So let's, let's just see how it goes. Don't put pressure on these guys, especially a guy like Bokeman, because your legs are going to do the talking. Mm. And there's a lot of different battles going on, a lot at stake. So just do your best. Have fun. This is the Tour de France, and you're in the top 10 in, going into the final mountain stage. Man, leave it all on the line. Just whatever you do, don't freak out because you have what you have at this point in the tour. So don't let that negative mental mindset take over because you're there. You're good. You could potentially win the tour. So just go out there and let it rip. The weather. The theme of today, uh, chosen weeks ago, but very fortuitously came on a day when the Tour de France has experienced something unlike it ever has before. We've got a really good guest uh, lined up. But before we get there, Bobby, I just want to ask you, um, what's the worst day of weather on the bike for you? That's an easy one for me. Um, Remember, I raced at a period where we didn't really have the cold weather, warm weather protocols. We were just kind of winging it. But the most difficult stage weather-wise that I ever did was very well documented in the 1998 Tour de France coming over the Galibier. And we did the hard side. We did the Telegraph-Galibier combination. And on that descent, that was the craziest descent I've ever seen. I mean, there were people frozen. I remember, you know, I, I took my rain jacket in my pocket up that whole climb. And as we're getting to the top of the Galibier, I'm like, you know what? I should stop on the side of the road, put this jacket on, zip it up, make sure it's on, because I'm not going to have time to do this on the descent. And I hesitated. We went over the top, 
And then sure enough, I tried putting on the jacket. I had one arm in and all of a sudden we hit one of those first hairpin turns and I just went straight, just full break. I'm going straight. There was a camper van right there. And I'm like pretty calm, cool and collected because I'm like, okay, I didn't crash. But the spectator there was like so excited as I'm trying to zip up my, you know, put in my other arm into this jacket and, and zip it up. He basically pushes me back onto the descent. So there I am like, damn it. I wanted to sit there and just calmly put this jacket on. Now I have to mess with it for another couple minutes. I finally got that jacket on and it was a Gore-Tex fiber jacket that we went and had um, made when I was on Kofidis. And we only had one of them. And I'm going down the descent and I'm catching back up onto the group. And I'm looking at guys like Michael Bogard, um, Jan Ulrich, and they are statues. They're frozen solid. I remember looking over at Jan and he had maybe a little yellow jersey gelée on and a little cycling cap, no helmet. And he had a water bottle in his teeth. And it was he had both hands on the bar and this water bottle was just like he was biting on the the, the nipple of the water bottle. And I said, "Man, this this guy's going to be frozen." Cuz I could not even hold the handlebars. I was shaking so much and I had that Gore-Tex jacket on. And I really you know, you talk to a lot of guys, there was guys stopping on the side of the road, you know, abandoning the race, just frozen. But then luckily when we got down to the bottom, because I had some body heat going on within that, that Gore-Tex fabric, I warmed up pretty quick, but those other guys didn't. So for me, that was by far the worst, hardest weather conditions because, you know, if something like that happens out on a training ride, you just jump into a cafe or call the wife alert and have her come pick you up in the car. But there... Before all these protocols and questions and and race radios, you didn't know what was going on, so you just had to deal with it. Yeah, you just had to push on through. <laughs> and yeah, uh, that sounds brutal, man. I know, like, I hate the cold. And I mean, I've never done the Tour de France, so I don't have any epic kind of story like that. But I was doing Tour of Alberta once, and um, like, it was snowing. It was, I think it was just below zero. And, um, and my hands had like stopped working. And I was in the front group and I was like a crosswindy kind of thing. Anyway, my director was like, oh, stop. We've got some fresh gloves for you. Stop and we'll, I'll put some new gloves on your hands for you and, we'll, and you can get back in the race. Anyway, we stopped and he took the gloves off and then he starts to try and put the new gloves on. And my fingers were so frozen that they wouldn't work. And so they just kept folding up into these little balls. And so he couldn't get the gloves on. And finally, like, I'm just like minutes are ticking by. We're on the side of the road. And I was just like, God damn it, like threw the leg back over the bike and started riding. <laughs> and I had to finish the stage. And I, so I went from having gloves on to taking them off to now having no gloves uh, in minus like two degrees snowing. And I just remember that was, um, that was like, yeah, that was it for me. I was like, this is, this is too much. This is hell. Um, so yeah, you can put yourself through some absolute ridiculous weather situations on the bike. Yeah, uh, you have to have in your rain bag those survival items and those survival items are down at the bottom of your rain bag because they're not sponsor appropriate they're the last last you know last ditch effort of hey i just need to finish i don't care if i get in trouble by my sponsor for wearing another brand here and that was always tucked down at the bottom for you know in case of emergency break glass sort of thing and i have to this day i still have many of the same items that I had in my rain bag. 
they're you know 10 15 what years old but man they they were battle tested so what are they Number one, you got to think of your extremities. You got to think of your feet and your hands because that's the first thing to go because your, your body's trying to keep the blood closer to your you know, vital organs, right? So I had multiple pairs of gloves. So in order to not have the problem that you had, I had the Pearl Azumi lobster glove. So you didn't have to deal with putting all, fi- oh, the, all the five langusta. fingers in. It was basically like just slide it in there. But... That didn't work so well if it was cold and wet. So when it was wet, I had a pair of diving gloves. Oh, like, the, go to a diving scuba diving store. Dude, and they're like 30 and bucks they will, too. They're they cheap. will absolutely Smart. save your life. Your hands may be cold, but then, you know, that's the way scuba uh, material works, right? It gets wet, and then the water, the heat coming off your hands kind of warms up that water, and it forms a little bit of a barrier. So those were my two glove options. And then I always had like the, the little toe covers. I think I have those left over from craft. From and then a pair of neoprene booties. And again, the neoprene was when it was cold. And when it was wet, I would have a pair of, um, not lycra, but rainproof booties. I think they came from Specialized. And, you know, that was like, hey, it's, it's going to be wet, but at least it'll kind of keep some of my heat coming off my feet in that kind of slushy mess that, that is created when you're going through that sort of stuff. But um, a headband, like you had to have that thing that you, like a, a buff, right, that you could basically take over your helmet, put around your neck, clo- um, you know, maybe up over your nose and your mouth. That was, that was super. And now they're kind of on mode. But back then, I probably looked like a, a big-time nerd. And I brought that from ski racing. <laughs> I always used to have one of those when I was ski racing. But then the most important thing, the rain jacket. And I'm not talking about that plastic cheap thing that you buy and, you know, is, is basically just a, a trash bag. I'm talking a engineered expensive material rain jacket that through rain, sleet and snow, you know that it's going to keep you warm. And it has to be from that breathable material and it has to be able to fit in your pocket. So, those those things I still have in my bag to this day. Dude, that's not a rain bag. That's a rain suit. I was a chronic overdresser. Got, I will uh, admit, I was a chronic sol- overdresser. <laughs> <laughs> I'd get to the start of a race like Perry Nice, and I'd just have my vest, my buff, my gloves, my shoe covers, everything. And I'd look over at, especially I remember uh, Stephen DeYonga, who's now a DS at Trek Segafredo. He was next to me with no arm warmers, no gloves, maybe clear lenses but that was it and i just dude the belgies always i don't know if they have they? seal skin or so something hardcore. but let's just say i was fragile when it came to to weather but you also had to make sure that you could zip on and zip up zip down and zip up whatever you had on because sometimes one of the worst feelings that you can have is when you actually start to overheat then you feel totally blocked so there was a fine line and you had to have options zippers buttons uh, Velcro, whatever. <laughs> you were constantly making these little adjustments to your uh, internal body temperature. There you go, guys. Bobby, the accessorizer. Uh, if you want any information on cycling kit and style, Bobby, layering, multiple uh, accessories, several options. Dude, I didn't know that about you. Okay. At fear, that's <laughs> one word answer. Favorite bit of kit, full stop. Rain jacket. There you go. Rain jacket. Uh, let's, let's, 
Okay, and I've got one more question for you too. Are you? I think this is going to be in the affirmative. Are you like a weather, like paranoia weather freak, where you're like checking the weather all the time, like umming and ahhing, or are you just like someone who's just like I can't change the weather, so it is it's going to be what it's going to be. I will say I'm not a Juan Antonio Fletcher who could basically be a weatherman on TV. He took it to a totally different level. Yeah. Um, so I just looked out the window, did the old weather check. And if it was raining, it was yeah. raining. And then I had all my stuff. But the the knowledge and confidence that I had in that survival kit rain bag said, hey, let's get on with it. Let's move on to our expert. We've, uh, we've been dilly-dallying a little bit. But today we have uh, co-founder of Best Bike Split. Um, works with Training Peaks, a lot of bike riders, uh, and has done a lot of research into how the weather impacts bike riding. His name is Ryan Cooper. Mate, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Hey, great to be here. Cheers, man. Now, you've done a lot of work uh, on the weather and its impact on bike riders. And, you know, as we've said a hundred times already, like with what happened with today's stage, this freak incident, it's fantastic to have you on the show today. Let's talk about well, I guess, first of all, um, let's talk about how the weather impacts riders. And as we've seen over the last week of the Tour de France, we've seen weather in the 40s Celsius. Uh, and then today we saw snow cancelling the stage. How does that like? How does that impact the human body? What goes on um, at high temperature versus low temperature? Sure. Um, yeah, this, this tour has kind of been a tour of extremes. So we had the extreme crosswind, the extreme heat. Um, even Sagan was talking a little bit about how um, kind of dangerous it was when you got over the 40s. And then, of course, the the, the hailstorm, snowstorm, flooding today. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of look at it in two different two different avenues. So there's the physics part. So how does it affect the actual physics of, of riding? And then there's the physiological part. How does it affect the, the riders themselves? So you kind of look at it um, from those two, two kind of perspectives. So kind of counterintuitively heat and humidity actually helps you aerodynamically. So like it, it actually increases the speeds of, of the Peloton, right? So it's a, you kind of look at the hour records and you notice like when they're riding, they, they kind of pump the humidity up in, in the velodromes, right? And so they get that little extra uh, benefit. Um, but of course, uh, physiologically your core body temperature goes up. And so even if it helps aerodynamically, your power is probably going to be a little bit off compared to where it normally would be at the, at the better time. So, so you kind of look at it, those two extremes and, and you almost hope for a bit of a headwind or a bit of a wind um, when it's hot, just because if you have that tailwind, you're going to even experience it more. You're going faster, but you don't feel like you're going faster. And so you get that, you get that core temperature, you can't get any kind of breeze to cool yourself down, right? Um, yep. so it's definitely been a tour of, of pretty extreme conditions. Um, and, you know, the riders, you see, you see how, how they kind of suffer in it, um, especially, you know, in the, in the crosswinds and, and things earlier, like in stage yeah. 10. Uh, you see how that can really blow up the course and then the heat, you can see those average temperatures, I mean, average speeds slow way down because they just don't want to, they don't want to push so hard in the front and go into the red. Let's talk about, you mentioned it just then, the, the, the crosswind, the extreme crosswinds um, and up to this point, arguably the most decisive day of this year's Tour de France. What's going on there, like, like the physics and, and that sort of stuff of, of, of a crosswind? Sure, typically... Um, 
if you have a, a, a low crosswind or, or, or a headwind or a tailwind, you, the Peloton is basically acting like a big single unit, right? So it, it's, you have this kind of aerodynamic group that's going through the, through the air. And so you have the people out in front get a little bit of benefit from the big group behind them. And then of course, in the Peloton itself, you get a huge benefit. Well, as you start to get those big crosswinds, you're limited on where your positioning can be just by the, the how wide the road is. So if you have a narrow road, um, like we saw in, in stage 10, um, and you have enough pressure out in front pushing the pace, then there's just, you run out of space to position yourself to get that benefit. Um, and so the, the teams, I was kind of mentioning earlier, you, back when we started Best Bike Split mm -hmm. back in 2013, 14, some of the teams had a data scientist, right? Maybe one or two. Um, but most teams did. Now, almost every team has a data scientist. Some teams have three or yep. four. Um, yep. So you start to look at that, and they know exactly where on course, talking about your, your weatherman, you know, they, they know through kind of hyper-local weather sources what it's going to be like throughout the day at different points in the course. So a team like Ineos knew there was going to be potential for big crosswinds in that section. And so if you see education first starting to push the pace, they say, okay, woo, we got we got somebody that can work with us here. Let's go do the same thing. Um, and it, as you saw, it form breaks in the GC uh, pretty early on. And so what you would hope to look for, and if, if they're modeling it, what you would look for is like that big crosswind to break it up, followed by potentially a tailwind section. So if you have a crosswind to a tailwind, that mm -hmm. kind of chase group, has to push so much harder power to try and close that gap. If it was a big headwind, then maybe they could take turns off the front and, and narrow that down. But if you go cross to tail, then suddenly the, the chasing group, everybody's at such a high speed that your chasing group just can't, can't close that down or bridge it down. So, and, and that's what we ended up seeing in stage 10. So it worked out really well for those that did make the break. Yeah, and I know Bobby um, is probably more qualified to ask this question, but talking about best bike split, and yeah, I guess, can you run that through and Bobby, do you want to kind of field this question um, about like, how do you, like, how do you model that and how is that, how do you use that program? Yeah, basically? that's, that's my question as well. I've looked into it. I, I know a lot of people that have used it and the fact I, I'm just interested in maybe the listeners are as well. What are the parameters that you look at in best bike split what are the what is the information that you actually have to put in the system to come up with the base the best pacing strategy say for like a time trial or something sure so originally best bike split we created it with the time trial in mind um so the idea being that now pretty much every rider has their aerodynamic numbers at least at the pro tour level right so they've gone to the wind tunnel they've done field testing, they've gone to the velodrome. So it takes in your aerodynamics, um, your rolling resistance. So if you look at the type of tire and pressure that you have in your tire and the type of road surface that you're gonna be traveling on. Um, and then it looks at weight of the rider, of course, and weight of the equipment, so bike, rider, um, and then the power profile of the athlete. So if you look at, say, you know, a, a big power time trialist, and what their FTP or functional threshold power is, kind of what they can maintain for about an hour or so. Um, you look at that, you look at, you know, their short-term, say, 
one minute to two minute type of power numbers and what they can do on these like short punchy type of accelerations, then you model that out based on the specific course. So for a course, it would take in the climb significant gradient changes as well as the direction changes. Um, and we would take the direction changes in to look at cornering ability. So is one athlete a better, a uh, little more skilled uh, than potentially another one at cornering, um, as well as the weather impact. So if we know where the weather's coming from and you know the direction of the course and kind of what the course looks like, you can, you can see what that wind impact is on, on the rider as well. So that's, that's kind of how we started it off. Um, in, a, in 2014, we worked with uh, Trek Factory Racing. Um, and, and that was our first pro team to, to work with. Training Peaks bought us that year. And now uh, a majority of the teams either are sponsored by Training Peaks and use the software or have uh, purchased it outside of uh, a sponsorship type of deal. So uh, I would say uh, at least half or, or so of the teams have, have been using the software for the last couple of years. And I find it very interesting reading information of how you guys use this algorithm and this predictive software and how close you actually get to the final result. I remember Jim Miller, who also works for Training Peaks, had an article or, or said that he was using this software. And it was it was pretty impressive. It seems like a lot of variables could change throughout the race, but it, it doesn't. And for, for how, how actually close can you get in, say, like a 40K time trial or like the Olympic time trial? Um, yeah, so in the Olympics, I think we were within like two seconds or something of Kristen Armstrong. What? Uh, I believe. <laughs> so Jim, Jim was so super close as well. So, um, you know, it, it all depends. It's again, it's good data in is good data out. Right. So, um, as long as we know that the, the data variables going in are, are accurate, then we tend to, to have really good, good results coming back. Um, but you know, if, like you said, variables can change, wind can change. And we've seen that happen um, at the Australian time trials uh, this year, um, Australian national time trials, uh, Durbo, yeah, used it um, and beat Dennis this year, which was, which was nice. <laughs> that, was a, uh, that was a nice feather in her hat, which, uh, which he talked about later. And, and more so than the straight accuracy, um, it's, it's about the, the tactics involved too. So, you know, he, he saw that normally he would have just blown out of the gate at 440 watts and sat there and just tried to hold it as long as he could. Um, but the model showed that, hey, on this particular course with the wind conditions, you need to back off of it early. And he ended up doing that, and uh, which is very counterintuitive to, to the way he, he normally races. And he has a, a video about it. And uh, ended up working out really, really well because he had that extra energy at the last, you know, 5K to really push. Where you know, had he had he gone out hard early and died in that last 5K, it would just been giving coughing time back up. And so um, it really helped hone his strategy and, and kind of his his inner like instinct of just like gunning it off the off the front. Um, and then he ended up uh, winning and having a great result there. That's why I like this sort of software and what you said, you, you educated the riders on how to pace their, their effort. Because 
a lot of guys, when they come up and ask me, how do I become a better time trialist? Do I just go as hard as I can until I blow? I'm like, no. And it reminds me back in my junior days when we do the junior state championship of Colorado time trial. It was always like an out and back course, right? The old typical, Gus, you probably did these down in Australia, right? The little hot dog circuit, turn around yep. the traffic cone and then come back. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes you had a headwind on the way out. Sometimes you had a, a tailwind on the way out. And it was always, even back then when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, I'm thinking, okay, um, everyone's pretty much going the same speed with a tailwind on the way out to that traffic cone. But the most important thing is not trying to go that 1K an hour faster or one mile an hour faster there. It's going to really matter two, three, four times as much if I can go a mile an hour faster on the way back into that headwind. So it's just great that mm. this sort of software educates the riders because they're not robots. Unless you have somebody with a GPS system looking at your heart rate, looking at your speed, looking at your power on the radio and giving you all this information, which I don't think many people, if any people do, the, it comes down to the rider understanding what he's doing, planning his work and working his plan. And that's what makes a good time trialist. All this data is great. But really, it's, it's giving the riders those tools in the toolbox to make those better decisions when they're out there on the course. Exactly. I, and, and that's what I hope we kind of shrink that learning curve, right? So like, part of the reason we, we built this was uh, we also built it with triathletes in mind. But, you know, with the, the idea of like you have these age groupers or you have these, you know, cat four or five racers that are out there. Can we shrink that learning curve a little bit to help them, you know, get those general rules of thumbs down, you know, quite a bit, quite a bit quicker. So they're not out there eight years later and going, Oh, now I know how to do it. You know, you can kind of shrink that down and, and help, uh, help the pros, but also help the, the everyday athletes as well. Yeah. It's mate, it's remarkable software. I've used it. And as you were just saying, like things like tire pressure and tire type and all that sort of stuff and the impact they had on the race. Um, my old coach, Ben Day, I remember walking me through this, this program and I was like, Holy shit, there is a lot to like, there's a lot I don't think about. <laughs> and as Bobby, as it sounds, Bobby, I think you were just born a time trialist when you were like straight away like gaming where the wind was blowing and, and where you could make up the most time. Um, mate, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, fantastic information there. A lot to digest. And I, yeah, I encourage our uh, listeners to go and check out that software actually. Like even if you're not um, a data freak uh, like such as myself, it's intriguing stuff and it's really interesting to kind of the physics of riding a bike and the way in which you uh, move through space and how much effort that takes is, is very interesting. So, mate, thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Bobby, tomorrow's stage. Is there even going to be one? What's going to happen? The world is, is, uh, is the sun going to rise tomorrow? Nobody we knows. We may be in the matrix. We do not know at this point. No, there's going to be a race tomorrow. I mean, that was just a freak hailstorm that came through there. But man, oh man, here we go. It is coming down to the wire and the best guy. I, I'm a personal fan of having a time trial at the end of a grand tour because I want that confirmation that you are the strongest, that you, you are, are the strongest. I and bet you are. It, you know, back then, gosh, those time trials were over an hour long and it was on the second to last day. Yeah. And it was kind of like factored into your tactics. But now it, it's not needed because you have a... 33k climb to sort all that out at the finish tomorrow so 
Yeah. From Alberville with an uphill finish to Val Toren. 130K with a little teeny tiny 3K neutral. The sprint comes right away, followed by one cat one, one cat two, and then the horse category uh, climb up to Val de Torrens of 33.4 kilometers. So there's your time trial. There's going to be no second guessing. There's going to be, oh, you know, this guy won the tour because, you know, tactics or crosswinds. Man, what a stage, if you're a climber, (laughs) to... To really end the Tour de France with, and after such a dramatic day today, it's it's going to be awesome. But I think the results are going to be basically a carbon copy of what we saw on the top of the Isran today. Um, you know, jerseys come into play. Let's think about that. You know, Bernal, obviously his team is going to be all in. I think it's odd for the first time in many mm-hmm. many years that the guy's going to win the the Tour by only having to defend the jersey or you know, one day from, from his team. Cause normally yeah. with, with Chris Frome, they're defending it from wire to wire. The KOM Jersey. We still don't mm. know who has that. It could be Caruso. It could be, um, Bernal. Bardet did not look so hot today, but he could make up for that possibly tomorrow. But with those sort of points at the end, if Bernal does basically time trial solo off the front, I hope he had he puts all that stuff into into best bike split to make sure that he's got all the wind direction correct. He could wind a he could wind <laughs> up coming away with all three jerseys or three out of the four jerseys. If you make a mistake tomorrow tactically at the beginning, you're going to have 33.4 kilometers to make up for it. My pick is an easy one and I'm jumping ahead of you here. Bernal for the win, the overall win, the KOM win, the white jersey win. This guy is just like raking the pot. You know, you watch these these poker shows on TV and there's that big mound of chips in the front. That's Bernal. He's just t- doing the, the old rake with the, with the whole arm, both arms, just bringing it all back. I've picked Lander every day. I'm going to pick him again because I picked Trenton like four days in a row. And then he won a stage after I didn't pick him. So I can't abandon Lander now, so I'm going to stick with Lander. Long bomb. A Lander long bomb. Yeah. I think the question tomorrow is, are you going to risk losing the podium or your GC spot to win? Mm. It's going to take something like that. It's going to take a mentality that, listen, you know, if you're on the podium, that's a pretty important photo. But if you're fourth or fifth, I'm sorry, I can't tell you who got fourth or fifth in the last couple yeah, tours. Yeah, you know, you can you can normally exactly. explain who's on the podium, who won the green jersey, who won the white jersey, KOM jersey. So, yeah, those guys got to go, go all in. But in this day and age, fourth and fifth all the way to top 20 is still pretty damn impressive. Finishing the Tour de France, for goodness sake, is impressive. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll see tomorrow, especially with some right. guys getting maybe a little bit extra rest today, uh, a, a little bit more motivation. But, again, people... Wake up at the crack of dawn. Do not miss one single meter of tomorrow's stage. Absolutely not. And I'm going to be, uh, if I was there, I'd be plugging into best best bike split, finding out where the tailwind was and where the downhill was and plotting my course in that direction. There is no way you'd find me on that climb at the end there. Well, Bobby, thank you so much. Fantastic show. As always, uh, to our fans, thank you very much for tuning in and for subscribing. You can 
Even though it's two, only two episodes left to go, subscribe so you can get all of our back catalogue because uh, we have one of those now. Um, you can get that at iTunes, uh, PYSO on iTunes, on SoundCloud as well. Head over to velonews.com uh, for all of the Tour de France info and head over there ASAP because you'll get uh, the results which we don't yet have from the stage today. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, we know it's at the end, but reach out anyway, superfan at velonews.com or follow Bobby or I on social media at Bobby Zulik or at that is Gus. Bobby, until tomorrow. Thank you very much, Gus. And yeah, here we are, 19 stages in, and you're almost pronouncing my name correctly. I've been letting you go. I'm letting how do you, you go. pronounce it? I'm letting you go. Zulik. No, 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 no. How I, do you I want to see it? how you pronounce my name tomorrow, but you're getting closer, so thank you very much for that. So, Shit. Jewelry. Thank, <laughs> That's how I was pronouncing it. The, the thank, it's been so mispronounced my entire career, I'm not even worried about it. But thanks, everyone. This was a great episode. And tomorrow, before the stage clicks on NBC, just don't forget to put your socks on. Nice. Thanks, guys. Eddie, all good? Yeah, I'm going to take my horse to the hotel road.